Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your howling of a host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hey, Gary. How are you today? I am pretty good. How are you? Well, it is October, so a lot of things going on for us. Oh, yeah. Best month of the year. Well, it even ends uh, spectacularly because we'll be heading to Salem for our five-year wedding anniversary next weekend. Nice. Love it. Yeah, what better place to spend Halloween than in Salem itself? Absolutely. So we'll definitely give you guys the highlights of that with our next episode. Um, Also, Halloween marks our three-year anniversary. Well, actually, it'll be the completion of our second year, and we'll be starting our third year officially for the podcast. That is awesome. I can't believe we've been doing it that long. Well, we did take a break there when we were buying the new house, and it took a while to get started up again. So that's why we're only on the uh, 60s as far as uh, episodes go. But, you know, it's been running straight for a year now, so I think we're ready to start expanding it. And I have some big plans for year three. Woo! Can't wait. I hope our audience is just as excited. I'm sure they are. And, in fact, I was getting used to our new home here and our neighborhood. But, Goldie Ann, I think one of our neighbors might be a werewolf. Um, which one? <laughs> well, I saw one of them yesterday, and when I said hello, he waved back and said, Hey, how are you? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's not a sign that he's a werewolf? No, no, not at all. Are you sure? Yeah, he might be from the south. Oh, well, I'm f- from north, so these things are still new to me. Yeah, we know. <laughs> well, what is not new is that today's episode involves a story of ghastly murders. Some of the details written about the incidents contain some gruesome details. Cool. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. Cool. So what are we talking about? Well, I thought we would talk about the life of a farmer during the late 16th century, which was a miserable existence. Every day was a toil, fighting the land and the pests. Additionally, these farmers had to deal with the danger of thieves stealing their livestock or destroying their crops. For the town of Bedburg, Germany, life was even more challenging. The town was threatened by an infernal monster that threatened its livestock. Even the town folk were in danger as women and children were being attacked and killed in terrifying savagery. What? All evidence pointed to the fact that the stunned and upset townspeople were being hunted by a raging beast, a werewolf with a taste for flesh that lived amongst them. Interesting. This is the story of Peter Stump. Oh, you're still in one of my stories. I told you you would know this one. (sighs) So you might have some own facts that you might want to put into this today's story, Goldie Ann. Wow. 
That's awesome. Well, Peter Stump was known as the werewolf of Bedburg. His documented crimes and trial plunged a German town already dealing with political and religious uproar into an unthinkable nightmare. Even today's worst slasher horror movies pale in comparison with his heinous murders. The historical documents regarding Peter Stump disagree until about 1590. This was when a pamphlet of about 16 pages, best known as The Most Damnable Life and Death of Stump Peter, was written. The very first werewolf to ever be put on trial. The pamphlet was originally written in Dutch and later translated to English by George Bors, a self-proclaimed witness present at the time. He described the crimes as well as his trial. Augustus Montague, a literary scholar and clergyman, then included it into his work, Werewolves in Law and Legend. This work provides the modern information about the case and the source I chiefly utilize for today's story. However, no copies of the original pamphlet have survived. Of course. Only two copies of the original English version, one in the British Museum and the other in the Lambert Library, is all that remains about the heartbreak and the horror. So join us as we take a walk within the mist and dare to discover the werewolf of Bedburg. Chapter 1. Peter Stump, the Farmer Peter Stump was born at the village of Eprath near the country town of Bedburg in the electorate of Cologne, Germany. Unfortunately, his exact birth date is unknown as the local church registers were destroyed during the Thirty Years' War, which devastated much of the German countryside later on. The best that can be estimated is that it was between 1545 to 1550. It is believed that the name Stump, or Stumpf, may have been given to him as a reference to the fact that his left hand had been cut off, leaving only a stump. This is similar to the trend of the times of someone who bakes being given the last name Baker. Stump's name is also spelled as Peter Stube, Peter Stubb, Peter Stubb with two B's, Peter Stube, or Peter Stumpf. Though the loss of a left hand should have been seen as a disability to the work of a farmer, it did not prevent the man from becoming quite successful. He was a wealthy farmer in the rural community of Bedburg. His wealth ensured him a measure of respect and influence, enough so that he was lately in the company of a very beautiful mistress. The community knew him as a pleasant enough widower and father of two adolescent children. A son whose name is curiously never mentioned and a daughter named Beale. At the time, Catholics and Protestants were at war for the hearts and minds of the population. This brought occupying armies from both faiths to Bedburg. There were also outbreaks of the dreaded Black Plague spreading illness and death to the citizens of the region. 
crops were also suffering during these hard times as pests and the weather kept destroying seasons worth of food for the population. The townsfolk were beginning to feel the effects of hunger. War, disease, famine, and death. The fabled horsemen of the apocalypse were no strangers to the people of this region, which is perhaps provided the fertile ground for the awakening of Stump's foul deeds. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter 2, The Mutilations For almost 25 years, farmers around Bedburg were bewildered by the mutilations of their cattle. Day after day, for many weeks, they would find cows dead in the pastures, ripped open as if by some savage animal. It was whispered that some ravenous beast gorged on the flesh of the local goats, lambs, and sheep. Calves were found ripped in half and devoured raw. The creature was described as, quote, greedy, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like unto brands of fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. These deaths of the livestock strained the food shortages on the town even more, but starvation was not the only cause of their greatest fear. Children soon started to begin to vanish from their farms only yards away from their homes. Children were playing in groups when one or two would eventually get picked off. Young women went missing from the very paths that they walked on every day. Some were found dead later on, while others were never found at all. And these were no ordinary murders. The young women among the victims were sexually assaulted before being torn apart. Pregnant women had their fetuses ripped from their wombs and eaten. Small children were strangled, clubbed, and with their throats ripped open by clawed hands. Some were disemboweled and eaten. Now this is the whole viewer discretion advised. I'm feeling it. Definitely not something that you want to be eating breakfast with. No. So just imagine coming across one of these victims. No. The panicked community first suspected that a pack of wild wolves were the cause and the villagers armed themselves against the animals. People were traveling from town to town only in large, heavily armed bands of groups. Travelers would sometimes stumble on the victims' remains in their fields, raising the level of terror ever higher. When a child would go missing, the parents would immediately assume all was lost and that the wolf had taken another victim. So that's kind of rough when you're a parent and some your child doesn't come home for dinner or something and you just first thought, well, he's gone. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, I've got another one. It's okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, for these people... The problem was that there was never a sighting of the actual pack of wolves. So this led to many whisperings and gossip that what the town was actually facing was a werewolf 
able to kill and disappear. One of the reported legends from these attacks described a man standing at the edge of the forest. He watches as he is consumed with a ferocious rage inside of him. He sees the woman, the one he has targeted earlier from the village square. He watches as she leaves the packed streets and bids her friends a fond farewell. He can feel that this is his opportunity, and he transforms, shifting from being a man into a beast. This new wolf-like creature bounds across the fields towards the unsuspecting woman, only allowing her a moment to discover his presence but not enough time to even let out a scream before he has tasted the copper tinge of blood. Her lifeless body is all that remains on the ground, and even that disappears as he scoops it up and carries it back into the forest to finish his meal. With the deed complete, the wolf now takes the form of the man, and strolls back into the village and the busy street he had been watching so closely before. He greets the passing neighbors with a cheerful smile and a happy disposition, none of them knowing of Peter Stump's bestial secret. Just seems so unreal. You know, come on. Isn't everything about a werewolf kind of on the verge of being unreal? True. Very true. Chapter 3, Peter Stump, the Werewolf Apart from his public persona, Peter Stump's true nature would erupt through some black part of his soul to satisfy a bloodlust when he donned the skin of a wolf. He would utilize his amiable reputation and charming demeanor to lure women out from the village and into the fields alone. Other times, he would just wait for the opportunities to catch them separated from the others. Everyone saw him as being harmless. They didn't know his true nature. In any instance, as a werewolf, he would rape and murder his victims by ripping out their throats and tearing their limbs from their very bodies. In one instance of a documented triple murder, Stump saw two men and a woman taking a walk just outside of the city walls of Bedburg, and he crouched, hidden out of sight behind some of the bushes. He called out to one of the men by name, with the pretense that he needed help with some lumber. When the young man went out and joined him out of sight of the others, Stump bashed his head in. When the man didn't return, the second young man went looking for him, and was likewise killed. Now, fearing danger, the woman began to flee. But the Peter Wolf managed to race down and catch her along the fields. The men's battered bodies would later be found, but the woman never was. And it was thought that Stump, after raping and killing her, might have eaten her completely. At least one child was lucky enough to have escaped an attack. According to the story, several children were playing in a meadow along with some cows. Stump stormed into the crowd of children and ran after them in the form of his large wolf, 
grabbing one small girl by the neck. As the other children ran away, the werewolf of Peter Stump tried to rip her throat out. But his fangs were prevented from doing so by her stiff, high collar. This protected her throat and gave her time to cry out. Her screams alerted the cattle, which, fearing the safety of their own calves, stampeded after the werewolf. The creature released the girl, dropping her to the ground, and raced away. The girl lived as the only documented survivor. It is not known if she or any of the other children were able to recognize the wolf as Peter Stump. By any definition, Peter Stump was a monster. Yet all the while, he remained unsuspected by the town folks. In the document, The Damnable Life and Death of Stoke Peter, written just two years after his trial, George Bors wrote, quote, And sundry times he would go through the streets of Colin, Bedburg, and Sebalt, in comely fahabit, and very civilly as one well known to all the inhabitants thereabout. And oftentimes he was saluted of those who were friends and children he had actually birchered though nothing suspected for the same. Stubb loved his secret life as a werewolf, and he took great pleasure in walking through the streets of the town, hailing the family and friends of his victims, none of them aware that the gentleman farmer they just met was actually a homicidal maniac. During these sojourns, he would sometimes pick out his next victim, and by whatever means he could, later he would get them out into the fields so that he could, quote, ravish them and cruelly murder them, according to the pamphlet. Stump must have thought himself invincible through the power of becoming a werewolf. This extended to his own relationships to a woman named Catherine Trumpet, who was well known and favored by the town folk. She was described as tall and fair, with beauty that was more heavenly than any mortal creature possessed. She was definitely out of his league. <laughs> Obviously. Well, you know. Well, explained-wise, after the deeds of Stump were revealed, it was rumored that Catherine had not achieved her beauty naturally. Oh! There would be accusations that she achieved her appearance through the deceit and was in fact a wicked demon in the form of a woman sent by the devil to be a companion to his favorite, Peter. Everyone has a favorite Peter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. That just went off in a totally different tangent. Okay. Take a deep breath and back to the story. This insane rage of Peter also spread to his family. His daughter gave birth to a child born out of an incestuous relationship. What? Peter seemed to not only lust townspeople, but after his own daughter, and rumored his own sister. Oh my God. Now, he did love his son, and was seen as a kind father, but that did not stop his werewolf form. In later years, he led the boy into the fields, and killed him with a blow to the head. Later, 
feasting on the young flesh and brains of his own son. After 25 years, Peter was beginning to kill without regard and just out of simple bloodlust and pleasure. It was this attitude of arrogance that would lead to the end of his reign of terror. 25 years of that death. Is, that is one of the longest. Yeah, I'm not sure what the record is for serial killers and how many years they were active. I'm really embarrassed that I don't know that answer. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked you don't know that answer. I know. Well, chapter four, the capture of the werewolf. Every effort was made to try and kill the creature, yet it was able to elude capture for all those years. When the limbs of several missing people were found scattered along a field, the village had had enough. They were convinced that a ravenous wolf was responsible, and so several hunters gathered together and set out with their dogs with one job in mind to pursue the predator and end him for good. The men followed the trail of the wolf, discovering an abnormality of the wolf prints. It seemed that there were only three. This would give them an incorrect belief that the creature that they were hunting, the one that had attacked their livestock and villagers, was doing so because of an injury and because it was unable to hunt its normal prey in the forest. This deformed wolf became more savage because of a missing limb. To have survived so long with an injury or missing paw, they felt it must have been very cunning and very bold, making it much more dangerous. Now, Goldian, here is where the story gets quite strange. It seems the men hunted and tracked the creature for days out in the forest. They were able to keep it from returning to the fields in the village and limit it to the forest, but the beast always seemed to be one step ahead of them and completely immune to their traps. At very last, the exhausted hunting party finally saw the creature they'd been hunting. The great giant wolf raced along the tree line, the dogs were set loose, and they quickly pursued their quarry into the field. The hunters followed as quickly as they could behind them. The dogs chased the animal, barking loudly and full of bloodlust, until they had it circled in a field of high grass with no chance of escape. The pack held their ground and waited for their masters who were convinced that they were chasing a wolf. When they moved in for the kill, the wolf was nowhere to be seen. Instead, there was a coward Peter Stump, and according to the account by George Bohr, being trapped with no room for escape, the werewolf was exhausted from days of the chase, and he had removed the device that gave him the ability to transform from wolf to his human form. The hunters only saw Stump in the field, no sign of the wolf they had been hunting. At first, they disbelieved their own eyes. After all, Peter was a respected, long-time resident. How could he be a werewolf? 
Did he just happen to be traveling through the woods at this inopportune moment? Was he an innocent victim trapped up by their hunting party? Perhaps this wasn't even really Peter Stump at all. The hunters reasoned that this might be a devilish trick of the werewolf to take on the appearance of the man. So they escorted their prisoner to his own home and determined that they would find another real Peter Stump. However, the man was not there, and it was determined that the creature they had been hunting, the one with three paws, was indeed Peter Stump, the one with the missing left hand, the one they knew and trusted. Peter was arrested and tried for the murders of 16 villagers, but that was just the start of it. It's crazy. <laughs> Chapter 5 the trial and execution. Next to the accusations of being a serial killer as well as a cannibal, Stomp was accused of being in league with the devil practicing sorcery. Thought now to be an actual paranormal werewolf, Stomp was brought to trial and it was only under the pain of torture on the rack that his confession to all of the heinous crimes came out. His ankles and wrists had been tied to each corner of the framework, which were then extended with the turning of a crank. The prisoner's body would be stretched and pulled to the point that joints would become dislocated and muscles torn. The pain must have been agonizing, and Peter wasted no time and confessed. In his own words, Peter stated that at the young age of 12, he had become interested in the dark arts and practiced black magic and occult rituals. By the time he was 20, he had made a pact with the devil, trading his soul in exchange for numerous worldly pleasures, such as becoming such a successful farmer. The pamphlet also reports that this wasn't even enough to satisfy Stump who was a, quote, wicked fiend pleased with the desires of wrong and destruction, inclined to blood and cruelty. This pleased the devil, so he gave him a magic belt in return for his eternal servitude. The translation of the pamphlet describes his receiving of the belt as such, quote, the devil gave unto him a girdle which being put around him he was straight transformed into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty. Eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like unto brands of fire. A mouth great and wide with sharp and cruel teeth. A huge body of mighty paws. And no sooner should he put off the same girdle, but presently he should appear in his former shape, according to the proportion of a man, as if he had never been changed. So a very flowery way to describe, he puts on a belt made of wolf hide, turns into a wolf, he takes off the belt, he turns back into a man. So a little bit different to the werewolf lore that we're usually used to, there's no full moon needed here, it's just a fashion change. The fact that his confession was extracted from torture led many researchers to surmise that Stump was, 
in fact, innocent, and that his wild confession was elicited by the pain of being stretched on the rack. Yeah, that definitely wouldn't be the first time. A lot of witch trials kind of ended out the same way. People making confessions just to get the pain to stop, whether or not it was true. Perhaps Stump himself was a victim of the superstition and religious rivalry taking place at the time. Remember, I said that there was a lot of conflict going on right now between Protestants and Catholics in Germany. Right. Many of the people had a fear and conviction of a demon-inspired werewolf that might lead people back to the true church of Roman Catholics. It was during the 1500s that there would be a rash of trials for people being accused of being werewolves. Most of the proceedings ended in the accused being put to death. About 250 werewolf trials from the period between 1423 and 1720 are documented in the literature. So Stump actually wasn't the first werewolf trial. I thought he was the first. But he was the most well-known and the only one that we really have documentation on. Okay. So it's the first proven werewolf trial. Many of these cases would go hand-in-hand with the infamous witch trials. The files on these trials have not been preserved. It is therefore impossible to determine whether Peter actually committed the crimes. There were no court documents, and he was certainly a recent convert to Protestantism, which was supported by Count Aldolf, who was the Lord of Bedburg at the time. Unfortunately for him, after the defeat of the Protestants in 1587, Bedburg Castle fell into the hands of Count Werner, a staunch Catholic who was prepared to do anything to reestablish Roman Catholics in the community. He utilized the local castle as the headquarters for a troop of Catholic mercenaries, soldiers who were prepared to prevent the expansion of Protestants in any cost. It is therefore not inconceivable that the trial of the alleged werewolf was actually a political trial, organized with the collaboration of the new Lord of Bedburg. Perhaps this was done in order to terrorize the Protestant population of this territory now occupied by the Catholics. But then, if this is true, Goldie Ann, why would Peter have created such an elaborate version of his story to include the magical belt? Even when he was asked what it became of the belt, Stump was able to explain that he had tossed it aside in the field when he changed back into a man. Yet, no hunters ever saw the belt, and there was no sign of any item ever found. The magistrates only needed Peter's confession that he made a deal with the devil and had murdered 16 people. The rest of his story, his confession, is so detailed that it just doesn't fit with it being a false confession. Whether he was truly a serial killer or a political victim... On October 28, 1589, Peter Stump was declared guilty of having practiced black magic, being a serial killer, a cannibal, and most of all, being a werewolf. Now, for thousands of years, straight back to the epic poems of Gilgamesh, humans have believed in lycanthropy, the act of becoming a werewolf. 
But even at that time, among the educated, the idea of lycanthropy was beginning to be understood as not a paranormal event, but more of a psychological incident. Five years before Stump was put to death, writer Reginald Scott, in his book, quote, Discovery of Witchcraft, argued that lycanthropy is a disease and not a transformation. So even before Peter's murderous spree, people were attempting to explain the situation scientifically rather than through the paranormal. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, a werewolf is more tangible than... Mental uh, illness? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just not a thing back then. Well, nowadays, uh, it's believed that it's possible that Peter was suffering from a clinical lycanthropy. This diagnosis, recognized in the DSM-4, is actually a confirmed psychological disease. It's thought to be a cultural manifestation of schizophrenia and associated with bouts of psychosis, hallucinations, disorganized speech, and grossly disorganized behavior. Could he have had a mental illness that made him believe he was actually able to take the form of a ravenous animal? Could Peter have really thought he was becoming a werewolf so that he could create these murders and this acts of cannibalism? Hmm. Regardless, his execution on October 31st, which we today celebrate as Halloween, was as gruesome then as any of the crimes of which he was accused. The execution became a spectacle with high-ranking members of the church, the government, and royalty all present. His body was strapped, spread eagle, on a large wheel, where flesh was torn from his body in ten places with red-hot pincers. After his flesh was pulled from his body, this was followed by the arms and legs being cut. His limbs were broken with the blunt side of an axe head to prevent him from returning from the grave. Finally, he was beheaded and burned on a fire. Sadly, his daughter Beale and mistress Catherine Trumpen had already been flayed and strangled in their own convictions of abetting his crimes. Their bodies were also put to the stake and burned to ash. So on this execution, there were three deaths. It's just insane. It's just uh, mass, mass, what is it? Mass hysteria. Just insane. It seems that the town folk definitely got their own versions of bloodlust and wanted their own revenge. Right. By directive of the magistrate, a warning was supposed to be put up to other potential devil worshippers. It was placed for all to see. The wheel on which Stump was tortured was set high upon a pole, and from it hung 16 yard-long strips of wood, representing 16 known victims. And ladies and gentlemen, it's the first, what is it, Eye of London. <laughs> it's the Eye of Germany. Ouch. <laughs> now atop that was an engraving of a wolf carved into the pole, and above that, on a sharpened point at the end of the pole was placed Peter Stump's severed head. Oh, dang. 
So this was a really intense Halloween decorations for the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think our yard could ever compare to this. The pamphlet documenting his execution concluded with the following, quote, Gentle reader, I have sat down the true discourse of this wicked man, Stump Peter, which I desire to be a warning to all sorcerers and witches, which unlawfully follow their own devilish imaginations, to the utter ruin and destruction of their souls eternally. From this, in, from this wicked interminable practice, I beseech God keep all good men from the cruelty of their wicked hearts. Amen. So this pamphlet not only tells the story, but gives it as a warning to any other people wishing to don their own magic belts. <laughs> right. Wow. There may never be any way of knowing for certain whether Peter Stump was a convenient passes for the authorities, which mean wolves or a wolf was really responsible for the deaths of the villagers, or was he a maniacal serial killer suffering a mental illness of the most abominable sort? There is historical evidence to support both scenarios. It is true medieval people often relied on spiritual concepts, like you mentioned, Goldian, werewolves and witches, to explain dark and inconceivable things like mental illness. This could have been why he ended up in chains. Perhaps he did prey on the unsuspecting people of his community. Or perhaps he was a victim by the sheer power of the superstitional lore. Either way, Peter Stump had one hellish of a dreadful journey from mere man to terrifying mythological werewolf. If he was a werewolf, where is the magical belt that enabled this power and will it ever be utilized again by a future werewolf? <laughs> All right, so I'm, yeah, that's just crazy because, I mean, this whole magic belt stuff, I mean, this is where I kind of had to stop and think that none of it could be true. Because if it was, you know how we love to take stuff from stories of old and bring them into the new. What werewolf in our new stories have you ever seen a magical belt? I mean, it's like that would have kept on, that would have stayed somewhere within the lure of a werewolf. And I mean, I'm not going to, I don't know if the guy was innocent. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know if he killed people. But it just strikes me funny that there was a wolf out there with three legs that the only logical exclamation that humans could do was, oh, it must be him because he doesn't have an arm. I mean, it's just... It doesn't take much to convince a mob of I know. someone's guilt. That's what I mean. I don't know if he's guilty. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if he's innocent, but I, I just, I think it's all mob mentality. Oh, definitely. And, I mean, I can understand why they were upset. He was in the wrong place. Yeah, wrong place, wrong time. Well, we'll just have (laughs) to see if something similar ever comes up through history again. In the meantime... I hope not. 
In the meantime, we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about Peter Stump. Do you think he was a werewolf, a mentally ill serial killer, or was he a victim to a holy war going on in Germany? You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We hope you enjoyed our story about the werewolf of Bedburg, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look closely into the fields and woods for the wolves and werewolves that might be there. <laughs> Remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>